Hey, good morning, Grace Hill. Yeah, I apologize for the heat this morning. I know it's kind of warm, but I can tell you there's nowhere hotter than up here. That's, uh... <laughs> I'm, uh, my name is Joe Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at, at the church, uh, but I'm not the pastor who usually preaches. Our pastor preaching, Alan McCullough, he's down in the Dominican Republic this weekend visiting one of our missionary teams um, that we support. Before we left, though, Alan had begun preaching a, a great series uh, titled King Jesus. But sometimes we, we hit pause on whatever sermon series we're in um, to talk about something that's going on in our culture. At Grace Hill, we believe that if our culture is talking about something and the Bible has something to say about it, that is something we should be addressing. I don't know if you've noticed, but our society has been talking about politics. Uh, so today, I want to talk about how Christians should engage in politics. Uh, in fact, this is what I hope is going to be the first of three sermons that I preach on this topic about how Christians should engage in politics. But because I only preach every once every five or six months, you'll have to come back for the second part in the, in, in the fall, and part three probably sometime in 2020. So, uh, And maybe you're like me, and the last thing you want to hear on a Sunday morning is some preacher telling you how to think about politics. I get that, but there are two ways that this sermon isn't going to be that unusual. First, this is an extension of what Alan has been preaching about the past few weeks. As Alan made clear, the claim that Jesus is our king is not a mere metaphor. It's our reality. And so if king, Jesus is our king, that is going to shape how we view politics and how we view life in this world. Second, all sermons are political. As Jonathan Lehman of Capitol Hill Baptist Church says, every week, a preacher stands up to preach, he makes a political speech. In every sermon, a preacher is teaching the congregation to observe the wall that King Jesus commands. The preacher is telling us how we are to be shaped by the king's laws and how we are to carry out the king's mission. Every sermon we preach here at Grace Hill is a political sermon because every sermon we preach is ultimately about King Jesus. Now, I'm not much of a preacher, and you may not like my message today, but I hope when you leave here, It'll make you think more about how you can better serve our king. Before we get started, though, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come before you today. Help us as we search your word that we might hear that you have to say about we should live in this world and engage within the realm of politics. Help us leave today with a better understanding of how we should present ourselves before you and before our unbelieving neighbors. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Three years ago, I was invited to, uh, to be on a panel session at the Tech Festival South by Southwest. And if you've never heard of South by Southwest, it's one of these festivals for the young and hip. So it was natural that I was, I was asked to speak there. <laughs> um, I wasn't surprised by that, but I was surprised on what they asked me to speak about. They asked me to come talk about God and the singularity. Now, if you've probably never heard of the singularity, it's, it's the idea that at some point uh, in the near future, probably in the next 10 years, Technological growth will be so rapid, so irreversible, and so uncontrollable that it will change the world in ways we can't even imagine. Um, and one prime example is that many singular, singularitarians believe that we will be able to upload our brains, upload our souls onto computers, and that we will live forever because we'll be just be living in the, in the, in the cloud. And some, some people who criticize this call this the rapture of the nerds. <laughs> As I told the audience at the festival, what Christians have in common with them is that we both have some very weird beliefs. 
For example, some singularitarians believe that while they'll be able to live forever because biotechnology will make it possible for us to upgrade our bodies and to continue living forever. And Christians have a similar view. We believe we're going to live forever because we're going to have resurrected bodies. And they, the singularitarians, believe that the world as we know it will end when we're able to upload our souls to the cloud. And while we believe that the world ends when the man who saves our souls comes down from the cloud. While the beliefs of both groups are weird, there are two main ways our beliefs differ. The first, of course, is that Christian beliefs are weird but true, while their beliefs are just weird and crazy. The second is that while their views are weird, their views are still mostly accepted by the mainstream culture. While our views provoke hatred by our neighbors. This is an important point for understanding our relationship to the world. Society is not opposed to our beliefs because they're weird. What society finds offensive is the Christians hold religious beliefs that I call biblically weird. So what do we mean by weird? Well, the Cambridge Dictionary defines weird as meaning strange and different from anything natural or ordinary. And the Oxford English Dictionary defines it as suggesting something supernatural or unearthly. Now, if we combine these two to form one definition, we come up with the uh, biblical weirdness is we are biblically weird when we are supernaturally infused to follow Christ in a way that makes us appear strange and different from the world in which we live. Let me say that again. We are biblically weird when we are supernaturally infused to follow Christ in a way that makes us appear strange and different from the world we live in. So the opposite of being biblically weird is to be worldly. In his wonderful short book, The Hole in Our Holiness, Kevin DeYoung says that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Because we shun sin and embrace righteousness, the world sees us as biblically weird. As I said earlier, society wouldn't care if we were weird. There are many sectors of society that embrace weirdness. At the, Southwest South, the South by Southwest Festival is held every year in Austin, Texas. And 19 years ago, the Austin Business League adopted the motto for the city, Keep Austin Weird. And since then, other cities, Portland, Louisville, Indianapolis, have adopted the same slogan. And I think we should adopt that slogan, too. I think as Bible-believing Christians, we have an obligation to ourselves and our neighbors to keep Christianity weird. To live in this world and engage as political beings, we need to retain our biblical weirdness. We need to keep Christianity weird. And we need to do it knowing it's the kind of weird the world won't accept. So where in the Bible do I find this call to be weird? And I think we see it sprinkled throughout the book of 1 Peter. Unfortunately, while the book is rather short, it's only about 1,700 words long, we don't have time to read the whole thing this morning, so I'm just going to focus on a few key verses. But I hope sometime during this week, you'll take the time to read through the book, look at the context, and make sure that what I'm preaching today and what I'm telling you is sound doctrine. So this morning, I want to show you how Peter makes the case that we, as Christians living in 21st century America, should be weird. In doing so, I'm going to highlight three principles. The first principle is that we must stay biblically weird to keep from being shaped by society. Earlier, Justin read a passage from Peter, uh, chapter 4 of Peter. In that passage, Peter points out that because of Christ, we do not live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. We're already done living our time in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and idolatry. 
Then Peter says, they, talking about the unbelievers, are surprised that you do not join them in the reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they are to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Notice how Peter says that non-believers are going to react to us. They will be surprised that we do not join them in their wild living, and they will heap abuse on us because we don't join them. And the word here for surprise in the Greek sometimes means strange things. So Peter's saying that they will think it's strange that you do not join them. We have become strangers to them in submitting to Jesus because we have become strange. A few verses later in verse 12, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, coming on this passage, theologian John Piper says that we can paraphrase this by saying, don't think it is strange when they think you are strange. Because you don't join in with them, the world is doing, they're going to treat you as a weirdo. And what happens to weirdos when they stand out? Well, as we all know, anybody who's been through high school knows, you're going to be treated as a weirdo by heaping abuse on you. And the word here, what heap abuse, is the same word we get the word, English word blasphemy. It means they're going to revile you. They're going to slander you. They're going to defame you because of your weird. The non-believers are going to help heap abuse on you because they're applying pressure. They're trying to apply peer pressure to you to get you to change your ways. Now, all people, whether you're a child, a teenager, an adult, are subject to peer pressure in both positive and negative ways. And the influence of our peer groups leads us to conform to societal norms. Uh, we ultimately develop our sense of self and our place in society based on what our peer pressure groups form us to be. For us as Christians, peer pressure comes from two broad categories. We feel the pressure to conform from our fellow believers, those who are inside God's kingdom, and we feel pressure to conform from outside God's kingdom, from non-believers and from Christians who really don't follow God's word. But it's not just us. Unbelievers oftentimes feel the same kind of pressure, and it makes them uneasy. A good example of this is in a song uh, called Church Pews and Barstools by the country singer Jason Aldean. And in the song, J Aldean complained that he's stuck in a small town where the only choice is a church pew or barstool. He says there's only two means of salvation around here that seem to work, whiskey or the Bible, a shot glass or revival. He has that when you don't seem to run on either side of the fence, people act like you don't make sense. Later in the song, he says he needs to escape to a place where there is no lines. And the unspoken idea in Aldine's song is that if we can escape the peer pressure of a small town where the church ch choice is hanging out at a bar or hanging out at a church, then we can find ourselves. We can be who we were meant to be. We can find ourselves. We can choose to be ourselves. What he doesn't seem to understand is that no one gets to choose to be themselves. As Tim Keller says, we only get to choose to be the selves our culture says we may be. And Keller gives an example of two young men from very different times and cultures. And the first is an Anglo-Saxon British warrior living in the year 800. And the second is a young man living in modern-day Manhattan. Now, both men, young men have... Uh, two equally strong urges. Both young men are equally feel the, uh, aggressive and feel the need to be violent. And both young men have the uh, urge for same-sex attraction. 
Because the young warrior lives in a culture that values aggression and violence, he will say to himself, that's who I am. That's what I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to express. And he'll look at his same-sex attraction and say, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm not going to express that at all. For the young New Yorker, though, it'll be just the opposite. He'll look at his aggression and his violent tendencies, and he'll say, that's not who I am. And so he'll go to anger management. He'll go to counseling to try to suppress that. He'll look at his same-sex desires, though, and say, that's who I am. I'm a gay man. I'm going to express that. Now, if you ask each of these men, they would tell you that they freely chose which identity to embrace. But that's not true at all. As Keller says, we do not get to our identity simply from within. Rather, we receive some interpretive grid that we lay over our feelings and our impulses, and we sift through it to see what society says we can be and what, what we're allowed to be. And then we say that right there, what, whatever's left over, that's our true selves. That's what we can be. Every person on earth is being shaped in this way. You are being shaped in this way. How you see yourself, how you engage in culture, is being shaped by a moral framework that you did not create. The question this morning is whether you will be primarily shaped by the Bible and those committed to following God's word, or whether you will be primarily shaped by culture in American society. So that brings us to our second principle. We don't get to decide how we are biblically weird. Now, biblical weirdness is constrained by two factors. It's constrained on one hand by the word of God, and on the other hand, by the attitude of society. Now, you can be weird without being biblical, and you can be biblical without being weird. And while what is biblical doesn't change over time, what our society determines as weird will change. For example, there are more people in slavery today than at any time in human history. To oppose slavery, of course, is biblical. And we should love our neighbor enough to want to free them from sex trafficking, from labor trafficking. To do that is biblical, but it's no longer weird. 200 years ago, when Christians first started opposing slavery, many of our fellow Americans considered them strange and perverse. Today, though, because we were biblically weird in the past, we've so transformed culture that it's no surprise that nobody really thinks we're weird when we oppose slavery. Today, 193 countries in the world outlaw slavery, and only, oh, excuse me, in 1800, 193 countries allowed slavery. Today, there's only three that do. Most of that is because of the work of Christians. On that issue, our culture progressed from a less Christian view to a more Christian view. But society can also regress from a more Christian view to a less Christian view. For instance, the idea that sex is to be confined within the bounds of a man and a woman in the marriage was always was considered normal for most of human for most of American history at least. Even if it was not always practiced, even if it wasn't always followed to the, by the as a, the right standard, it's still what people considered normal. That was what we were supposed to be doing. And sometimes there was a shift between the time uh, Peter is warning us about not to be involved in orgies until the time when this happened. And that's because Christians changed the culture and changed what was considered, it changed the culture so it was having sex outside of marriage began to be considered weird. And then came the sexual revolution, sometime in about the 1960s, and it shifted it back to the pagan view. And the result is that the worship of sex has become the dominant form of idolatry in this country. 
The sexual revolution has also completely transformed politics to the point where sex is becoming a fundamental right and it is creating rights in this country. The first new right ushered in in the sexual revolution was the right to privacy. In 1965, the Supreme Court ruled in a decision called Griswold versus Connecticut that married couples have a right to use contraceptives. Now, that sounds reasonable enough, but then this right continued to expand for the next 50 years. In 1972, the court used the logic in Griswold to extend the rights of contraceptives to non-married couples. And then in 1977, it extended it again to minors who were at least 16 years old. The court also used the reasoning in Griswold to declare a right to abortion in 1973, to a right to sodomy in 1983, and a right to same-sex marriage in 2015. Now, I suspect some of you are thinking, what's wrong with that? We're so accustomed to following the logic of the sexual revolution that we think it would be weird for any of that stuff to even be illegal. Almost every person in this room was born after the sexual revolution. Our church is a very young church with a lot of young people. At Grace Hill, I'm not just an elder, I'm one of the elderly. <laughs> and yet even I was born after the sexual revolution. I was born on the last day of Woodstock in 1969 when the sexual revolution was already well underway. I don't even know a time before this. There's no good old time. The good old days we can look back on and say, well, I remember back when. I don't remember back when. This is the experience I've always lived with throughout my life. We don't even notice we're being shaped by culture until the culture shifts just a little bit further than what we were used to when we were growing up. For example, my generation grew up where it was normal for a man and woman to have sex outside of marriage. Fornification was normal. We were surprised, though, that when we detached marriage, that sex from marriage to find when homosexuality became so normal that it, that it completely redefined what it meant to be married. Similarly, we have many people today who grew up thinking it was normal, homosexuality was normal, and yet they're kind of shocked to find that transgenderism is now the new thing that they're expected to be normal. Our kids, though, are growing up in a time when transgenderism can be considered normal. So what comes after that? What are they going to say is going to surprise them? Unfortunately, the longer Christians are influenced by culture, the more it begins to shape us. More than a third of evangelicals think that homosexuality is not a sin. Almost 60% of Christians think that same-sex marriage should be legal. And even fewer would say that their heterosexual friends were doing anything wrong by having sex with outside the bounds of marriage. And even fewer, very few young Christians today think there's anything wrong with living together before marriage. So where do they get those views from? It's certainly not from God. Instead, they disregard God's view on these issues to, to listen instead to the idol of sex. Now, I believe the idolatry, idolatry of sex by Christians generally takes two forms. And the first group simply says that they, they don't have the courage to be biblically weird. They look at whatever culture says is right, and they say, well, I'm going to go along with that. They disregard the Bible whenever it conflicts with what society tells them they should believe. The second group, though, they still recognize the authority of Scripture, or at least they still believe that there's some things called sin. And they might even freely admit that fornication is, fornication is a sin, 
And same-sex marriage is excluded by Jesus' clear and concise definition of marriage. Yet despite this understanding, they will still support the expansion of sexual idolatry because they themselves have made an idol of individualism. Today, they support laws that legalize same-sex marriage and oppose laws that would ban pornography. Tomorrow, they'll be the ones that support legalized prostitution and polygamy. They have replaced Jesus' commandment to love your neighbor as yourself with the guiding motto of the neo-pagan religion of Wicca, which says, do what you will so long as it harms none. When we endorse laws based solely on our secular conception of individualism, we are doing the very opposite of what Jesus called us to do. We are hating our neighbors. You do not love your neighbor by encouraging them to engage in actions that invoke God's wrath. As Christians, we may be required to tolerate ungodly behavior. But the moment we begin endorsing that same behavior, we too have become suppressors of truth. You cannot love your neighbor and want to see them excluded from the kingdom of God. You also get to decide which parts of the Bible you are comfortable applying to your political views and which you don't. You can't say that you're going to apply your biblical views uh, to serving the poor or protecting the environment or protecting the unborn. And then when it comes to the world standing on sexuality, we're going to say, well, I'm going to go with that. If you love your neighbor, you will seek their good in all areas. While society decides which views of your, your views are biblical or which views are weird, all your social and political views should be shaped by the Bible and God. Christians might not agree on the best application. We may differ. We may all agree how we, that we should serve the poor and disagree about how we should do that. But when it comes to loving our neighbor, engaging in politics, we should turn first and foremost to the Bible and say, what does God say about that? What is God's view on that? Because that is what should be our view. So how, though, do we make a distinction in the public square between endorsing sinful behavior and merely tolerating it? Now, here's a two-part standard I think every Christian should adopt to political views. First, Christians must support what they justifiably believe will promote the common good. If there are times when they can't do that, then we should abstain from engaging in politics. And second, Christians must engage in politics in a way that does not bring dishonor to Jesus. That brings us to our third and final principle. Being biblically weird means we do not dishonor the name of Jesus. Now, we shouldn't care too much about what the world says about us, but we should care deeply about the world is slandering Jesus' name because we are dishonoring his name. Now, Peter tells us how do we avoid that from happening. Peter says, For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Peter warned us earlier that because we are weird, because we do not live as the pagans do, they will heap abuse on us. They will blaspheme us. They will revile us. But before they can revile the name of Jesus, we're going to shut their mouths. And Peter tells us how we do that. We do that by doing good. Peter is saying that the pagans will make claims about us that they won't be able to back up because people will look at us and say, see that we are doing God's will by doing good. In the next verse, Peter also lays out some conditions for how we are to do good and live as exiles. Peter says, live as free people, 
but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. As Peter says, we must not use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. Now, one of the freedoms you have as a Christian and as American is the freedom to participate in elections. You have the freedom to cast a vote for a political candidate who represents your views or who will endorse laws that you, on your behalf. And when you're in the voting booth, no one knows but you how you're voting. But the same God who, as Jesus says, will hold you accountable for every careless word you speak, will hold you accountable for the way you vote. Peter also says that we are God's slaves. Everything that you have, including that ballot, belongs to God. So the question you should ask yourself when you go in the voting booth, are you casting a vote based on God's standards, or are you using the standards set by the secular world? Now, you may have been nodding in agreement when I said that Christians shouldn't be shaped by society. You may have even agreed when I said Christians should love our neighbor, neighbors by upholding the biblical standard on sexual ethics. But now we're going to consider what being biblically weird means for voting and supporting politicians, and it's going to get uncomfortable. The number of ways we can do good, as Peter says, are literally uncountable. So I'm just going to focus on one. I'm going to focus on how we do good by being truth tellers. As Peter might say, by being truth tellers, we shut the mouths of unbelievers who slander the name of Jesus. Non-believers should never be able to say that Christians are liars, that we are deceptive people, or that we are oath breakers. Now, God's attitude about lying is all over the Bible, but I just want to give you a few examples. In the book of Leviticus, do not lie, do not deceive one another. In Psalms, I hate and detest falsehood. In Proverbs, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. In Proverbs again, the righteousness hate what is false. In Colossians, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, we got it, preacher. God hates lying. Move on. We, we know this already. But do we? We say we're committed to being, telling the truth and to being truth tellers, and we, yet we certainly aren't consistent about it. And let me give you an example of what I mean. Imagine you go to a car mechanic. Who says she's a fellow Christian? And you hire her to change your brakes. And you later find out you lied about it. She never even changed the brake. She left the old ones on there. You later find out she does this all the time. She constantly lies about replacing parts that she doesn't do. Would you hire her to fix your car again? Would you trust your family's safety to someone who habitually lies about the work they did? Or imagine you go to a Christian baker and you tell them your child is allergic to peanuts and gluten. And then the baker, who, who says they're a Christian, sells you bread that has peanuts and gluten in it. Or imagine you go to a doctor for a procedure, and the doctor lies about the procedure they performed on you. Imagine just about any occupation where someone tells you that they're a fellow Christian, they repeatedly lie to your face, and yet you keep on trusting them to do their job. Can you think of any jobs like that? I can think of only one, the job of a politician. What do we do when we hear a politician tell us that they're a Christian, and yet they repeatedly lie to us? Most of the time we just shrug. Politicians lie, that's what they do. What are you going to do about it? I'll tell you what, as Christians, we should do. 
If someone claims you're a Christian, then you should hold them to the same standard you hold other Christians. You should do to the Christian politician what you would do to the Christian mechanic and the baker and the doctor who lied to you. You don't use their services. You don't support them. You don't give them the tr your trust. So does that mean that you shouldn't vote for a Christian politician that habitually lies? Well, let me put the question back on you. Does it promote the common good to elect politicians who habitually lie? Does it bring dishonor to the name of Jesus to elect people who habitually lie and yet claim to be citizens of Christ's kingdom? I've looked through the whole Bible, and I can assure you there is no exemption for Christian politicians by lying. In fact, there's not a single principle, rule, command that is applicable to all Christians that politicians get an exemption from. There's no verse that says just because you're a Christian running for a secular office, you're exempt from the ethical standards of being a disciple. God expects all the Christians, even politicians who claim they are Christians, to follow the standard he set in God's word. For example, God says to respect the life he's created. He doesn't give politicians a pass to support abortion or to murder civilians in an unjust war. God says to honor marriage. He doesn't give politicians a pass to support same-sex marriage or to cheat on their wives with porn stars. God says to tell the truth. He doesn't give politicians impunity to lie because they might not get elected if they told the truth. If a politician claims to be a follower of Christ, their narrative should be judged by the same standard that we judge all Christians. If they sin, we lovingly rebuke them. If they confess, we forgive. If they repent, we seek restoration. But if we're committed to following Christ, if we're committed to being biblically weird, we won't overlook their sin, even if it advances our preferred political causes. We also won't be so quick to make excuses for why we should overlook their sin. I first became eligible to vote in 1987. In every election since then, I've been told that if I don't support this particular politician, if I don't support this particular party, then our country is doomed. First of all, if you think that an outcome of any single election determines the future of our country, you need a more robust view of God's sovereignty. And second, once you go down that road and start making compromises, you'll find it will never end. For most of my life, I believe that when it comes to politics, it was acceptable for Christians, not only acceptable, but sometimes necessary for Christians to compromise our values and our principles for the greater good. I would have been the first to tell you that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And I still believe that, though not in the way I used to. I still believe in what's called the idea of proximate justice. Now, proximate justice is the idea that something is better than nothing. It allows us to make peace with some justice, some mercy, all while realizing that it only be in the next kingdom, in heaven and earth, that we find our longings finally fulfilled when we get true justice. But while I still believe in proximate justice, I no longer use it, as Peter says, as a cover-up for evil. I no longer believe proximate justice can justify every political decision I want to make. Is the political party I support unjust? Well, the other side's worse. Does the politician I support lack integrity? The other guy's even shadier. Head down that path, 
And you'll soon find you can justify anything. A commitment to proximate justice soon becomes Machiavellian. It becomes an exercise in the ends justify the means. Had I been choosing between two pagan politicians or two political parties dominated by paganism, I might have been justified in making such a good promise. But in almost every case, I was supporting, I was justifying my support for people and policies who claim to be Christians and political parties claiming to be dominated by Christians. And yet time and time again, I was making an excuse for the behavior that slandered Jesus. I was making excuses for people who say that their first allegiance is to the kingdom of Christ and who didn't act at all different from the secular world. What sort of message does it send when we say you can be a follower of Christ and support the legalized slaughter of unborn children? What sort of message does it send when we say a Christian can brag about sexually assaulting women and we'll give them the most powerful job on earth? Why do we support Christians who, or politicians who claim to be Christian and yet give the world reason to say we're hypocrites and liars? If our first and true allegiance is to King Jesus, then why are we more concerned when his name is sullied? And if we're more concerned about politics, if we're more concerned about the state of the world than we are about the reputation of Jesus, then we have our priorities out of whack. Let me make myself clear. I'm not trying to bind your conscience to my own perspective on politics. I'm simply asking you to search the scripture. Ask yourself what is truly shaping your views and your ideas on politics. Is it based on the Bible or is it based on American culture? Are you making political decisions that advance your cause but bring shame to King Jesus? The answer to these questions make engaging in politics difficult. And there is much more that needs to be said. As I mentioned earlier, this is just the first of three sermons. In future sermons, we'll consider how we can promote the common good without losing our souls. But that's in the future. Right now, I have to deal with the fallout that comes from what I just preached. <laughs> Some of you are probably annoyed, frustrated, even angry. And I get that. You might even be justified in your reaction. But as you leave here today, I want you to prayerfully consider if what I said is true. Search the scripture and see how Jesus engages with politics. If you think Jesus already supports the exact same politicians, the exact same policies that you already do, then you might be deceiving yourself. I implore you to consider how being biblically weird will change the way you engage in politics. If you can't think of any way that the way you engage in politics would differ from an average Christian or average non-believer in America, then you're not being weird enough. Remember at the beginning when I said you might not like this message, and some of you probably thought I was kidding? What I knew at the start, and that you're realizing now, is that the call to keep Christianity weird is a message that is not only despised by the world, it's not going to be popular inside the church either. And to be honest, I like to be popular. I like to be liked. I'm not eager to watch people after the church avoid me so they don't have to tell me how much they hated this message. That ain't going to be fun. And if there was a way I could, I could avoid all this biblical weirdness stuff, I probably would. But I can't. And the reason I can't 
is because we have to be committed to being biblically weird because it is the only way to be faithful to Christ. It is the only way we're going to find eternal life. Now, last Sunday, I taught the upper elementary kids, uh, GEC kids, and asked them to submit some tough questions that I could research and come back and give them an answer to. And one of the favorite questions they submitted was, why did some people not believe Jesus when he saved millions of people and there's proof? That's a tough question, and it requires a detailed response. But the short answer is that they didn't believe Jesus because believing in Jesus is hard. As the writer Flannery O'Connor once said, what people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket, when of course it is the cross. It is much harder to believe than not to believe. To believe in Jesus, to really believe in Jesus, not just give mental assent to the idea of Jesus, is hard. It requires taking up our cross and following him. At worst, it means we may suffer and die for our commitment to King Jesus. At best, it means we have to live like weirdos. We're always going to be out of sync with the rest of society, and we're always going to be doing things that make people despise us. Being biblically weird is hard. It's always been hard. It wasn't any easier when Jesus walked among us. The sixth chapter of John tells us that many of Jesus' earlier disciples were put off by his hard teaching and said, who can accept it? And verse 66 of John says that from this, this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus turned to his original 12 disciples and said, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter answered them and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Believing in Jesus is hard. Being a weirdo for Jesus is even harder. But what choice do we have? Where else are we going to go? Only Jesus, only King Jesus, the Holy One of God, has the words of eternal life. So we can either join the other weirdos and follow our king into heaven, or we can tag along with all the normal people as they head on the path to hell. Let us pray. Father, help us to understand that following you is going to make us outcasts and prize within our own nation. Give us the courage to stay true to your word, even when it becomes hard and politically unpopular. Give us the wisdom to be more concerned about the eternal politics of your kingdom than we are with the temporal politics of America. Help us find ways we can promote the common good and yet never let that be an excuse for us to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. Help us to love our neighbors, Father, but help us to love King Jesus even more. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.